You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, and today we'll be talking to Sydney Bassard, founder of the Listening SLP, as part of our Dyslexia Awareness Month series. We talked to Sydney about the role of speech-language pathologists in the reading science movement. We can't wait to talk with Sydney today. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we can't wait for this conversation because our guest started her journey as an SLP, a speech-language pathologist, after seeing her brother struggling with dyslexia. She believes in advocating within our communities so that educators and parents can be informed and actualize reading science into practice. So I'm not sure what is more noble than that. Right, Melissa? Right. Seriously. Um, yeah, and I, feel, I also feel like we're here with an old friend, you know, Sydney mm-hmm. Bassard. We found each other on some social media, all of the social media, I think, <laughs> at some point. Um, she's also known as the Listening SLP, so uh, she's amazing. Look her up if you haven't found her, and she is a certified speech-language pathologist. She works with people who are deaf and hard of hearing and those with literacy challenges. And not only does she have a clinical practice, but she also engages in research, which is super cool and exciting, and we can't wait to pick her brain about. Um, and she'll talk to us about the role of the SLP in communities, schools, and most importantly, with students. Yeah. So, Sydney, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good. Thank you both. That was a really flattering introduction. <laughs> but thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to get to chat with you both today. Yeah. Well, we're so glad that you're here. And we'd like to start with you just sharing a little bit about yourself, how you became a speech language pathologist or SLP, as we will uh, abbreviate for today's conversation at times. (laughs) Yeah. So my path to becoming an SLP is really unconventional. Most people go into becoming an SLP by getting a bachelor's in communication sciences and disorders or whatever their university calls it. Uh, But I actually started my undergrad thinking I wanted to be a pharmacist and I was dead set on becoming a doctor uh, until I took... I took organic chemistry and it said, girl, you are in the wrong, (laughs) wrong space. This is not for you. That's the one Um, that does everyone in. (laughs) Oh, man. It yeah, Uh it definitely did me in. And around that time, uh, that's when my brother got diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD. And I was kind of in a crossroads. I knew that I didn't want to be a pharmacist anymore, but I wasn't really sure what else I wanted to do. Uh, So I ended up getting a job and I actually worked at Linda Mood Bell Learning uh, Processes the center local to where I am Mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of summers. And I really liked it, but I did not want to go become a teacher only because I would have had to start all over again with college. So I found public health and I got my bachelor's of science in public health. I went back and took that organic chemistry class and I passed it second time. (laughs) Um, We love love that resilience and determination. Great work. Perseverance. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And so then from there, I found out that the University of South Carolina uh, was one of few schools that 
allows people that have a non-background to start their program and take some leveling courses pretty quickly. So I applied uh, and I ended up getting admitted. And then that's just kind of like how my journey as an SLP started, went to grad school and then ended up working clinically. Very cool. I'm wondering, before we like jump into our real conversation today, we we are highlighting dyslexia this month because it's October and it's Dyslexia Awareness Month. Um, and you just mentioned that your brother had was diagnosed with dyslexia. Is there anything else you wanted to share about your story with your brother? Yeah. So my brother's story um, is kind of unique in this. Well, it's not unique in a certain sense, and it's unfortunate. Um, He did not get diagnosed until he was going into the sixth grade, and he had always kind of struggled with reading. Um, Even talking with my mom, if you ask her, you know, she had to spend a lot of time with him not just with reading, but like in doing his homework, uh, lots of things that were missed. And if you look at the area we grew up in, um, it was pretty middle-class American uh, environment. And we were one of like, you know, one of the few Black families. And he um, just kind of went under the radar and not in under the radar, like he did well in class, like he got labeled as a behavior issue, uh, where there were other kids in his class that also presented with very similar profiles and they were being diagnosed or they were getting medication uh, to kind of help with their ADHD symptoms. And so I think once he got that diagnosis, it was, I think, a little bit of a relief for him. But I know from our family, it was a lot of explanation as to, okay, well, this is kind of a little bit of the why he functions the way he does and how it's a little bit different. And we had to make some adaptations. We had to uh, really educate ourselves to learn a lot more about what dyslexia was. But when you look at who's out there and who's educating people, um, you don't see a lot of people of color. You don't see a lot of Black people leading that charge. And then even more so, you don't see people leading the charge with parents. People are leading the charge with teachers. We are leading the charge with educators, but we are not leading the charge with the people who go home with these children every single day. And those are the people that really need to be educated on what this looks like in day to day. It's great to know what it looks like in the academic setting, but how is this impacting our life? We know it impacts when you're looking at job applications, having to fill out medical information, when you're going to decide healthcare. All of those things are really impactful, big life events. And yet we're only talking about the small portions of, you know, getting kids to be able to decode words and reading comprehension within the classroom when there's so much more to dyslexia and what that experience looks like. That's so important. I think sometimes we're so focused on like, we need to get the children what they need. We need to get the student what they need. But really, it's stepping back and looking at the whole picture is something that is so important. And I think you have that bird's eye view. So we're really glad that you're here to have this conversation with us today. We're going to jump into uh, a conversation around speech language pathologists. We've talked, we've actually talked to a few parents who were like, yes, speech language pathologists are so helpful. (laughs) And so Lori and I had been wanting to like talk a little more about, you know, for those in teachers, but also parents who might not even know what a speech language pathologist does. We really wanted to jump into that. So we know how important you all are to schools, but even outside of schools and not only helping students with dyslexia or with specific, you know, um, speech and language, you know, what you typically think of as speech and language. um, I don't even know what we call it. uh, (laughs) Disorders. 
Is that yeah, the right disorders, word? deficits. Right. <laughs> um, but I was going to say the... deficits, not sure. That's <laughs> all um, right. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. But also in the reading science, like beyond, like even for students who are just, you know, maybe just a little behind in reading or struggling to read, how how helpful a speech language pathologist can be. So anyway, all that to say, let's start from the very beginning. How would you just define the role of a speech language pathologist to someone who's never heard this term before? Yeah. So you can think of us as like communication experts. We go to school to be specifically trained in helping individuals across the lifespan with communication. Uh, We also do feeding and swallowing as well just depending on the setting that you're working in. Uh, And so SLPs can work with people from birth all the way up until death. It's really um, a wide range and scope of practice kind of based on what people do. But when thinking about like pediatrics and in the school setting, we're primarily focusing on two areas. So we have speech and the way that we can think about speech is like the production of how you're producing sounds. What does that sound like? Is it clear? Sometimes we might also be looking at um, voice within that as well, like your vocal quality. And then fluency is another area uh, for people that might be stutters and, you know, they're not always able to get their words out uh, as clearly as they may want them to be. So that's kind of like the speech component. So when we're thinking of those kids that we call them articulation errors, have those, that's generally where we're seeing where they're making those substitutions or their sounds aren't always exactly as we would want them to be. Then the other side of our job, which is where literacy um, ties in some with articulation, but it really ties in a lot more with language. And so language is like how you're using those words that you have acquired. Uh, We can think of language in a couple of different ways, but two broad categories is receptive language, which is your understanding. How much are you taking in and how much are you fully understanding that? And then we have expressive, which is how much are you putting out? And then we have other features of language that all kind of go into that, such as um, your prosody or like your intonation that we look at and your rate of speech, all of those kinds of things factor into understanding and producing a message too. That was such a helpful definition. I feel like we throw around the term SLP all the time. And I guess I thought about like a merger of the two of those, but not as clearly or as succinctly as you just articulated. So thank you. (laughs) And I never, I never think of it like that. I love when you mentioned like the birth to death, right? Like like Mm -hmm. you can, uh, that just kind of blew my mind when I heard about it because I always think the school setting. (laughs) Yeah. Huge scope of practice. Yeah. Fun fact. I actually, um, I, I had some speech, uh, I don't know if we call them classes. I don't think we call them classes, but I got pulled out for speech when I was in kindergarten and first grade. And I, it was like such a quick fix. Same Melissa, same here. Yeah. I, I, Mm -hmm. it was the like guh and cuh sounds that I struggled with. And I mean, I don't really remember it too. I remember going, but I don't remember too much. I just remember being like, Oh, great. We got it. (laughs) You're good to go. (laughs) I remember going, I remember like holding a mirror in front of my face and like looking and practicing. And then I remember really loving like getting out of like, oh, you get to do something special. Like it felt like such a special time, you know, like, oh, I get this one on one attention with this person who's going to help me do this thing better. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, okay, so let's transition into the role of the SLP. Um, Let's start like with the community, because we know you have such an important role in the school, in the community, you know, with our students, with our 
I mean, with really with everyone, as you just shared, like from birth till, you know, I, I hate saying death, but birth till death. <laughs> um, I feel like we should say like birth to 125. Like, let's choose the age of this person <laughs> and let's say that. Um, that sounds better. Sounds yeah, we better. can go that. To 120. That's what I'm going to say from here on out, Sydney. Um, <laughs> I think maybe let's start to think about the role of the SLP in in the community. Can you, can you kind of share what the, the role of the SLP is for us in the community setting? Yeah. So it really just kind of depends. Um, we have some SLPs that do private practice. There's some that work for nonprofits or have their own nonprofits. And so you're able to provide speech therapy services um, in that way. But one way that I think that like some SLPs think about, but not as much, is our role of just sharing about our services. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of misconception about what we do as SLPs. A lot of times, uh, regardless of the system that you're working in, we are like put in this very narrow box of you only do these things. And so people aren't really understanding that like, no, we don't just do one or two things. We do a lot of different things and how they really impact communication as a whole. Um, so just even thinking about communities, like, making sure that we know what SLPs do and being accessible to people to kind of ask those questions, even if it's not always um, because they're a direct client of ours, but just kind of being accessible to share a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Nobody ever asks what the physical therapist does. I mean, <laughs> you know why you're going to the physical therapist, but yet most times when people are like, oh, you should go see an SLP, they're like, but I talk fine. I don't need this <laughs> service. <laughs> Leave me alone. It's like, uh, actually, maybe, maybe we could benefit a little bit. We know that you have a really important role in the community. And also, you know, most importantly, I think for the, for the purpose of our conversation today in schools. So um, Melissa, I know you are going to ask a question about that. I'm going to turn it over to you. Oh yeah, sure. Well, I mean, that's, that's the question. Like what, what is the role of your, of the SLP in a school? But I think some of the questions we'll want to dig into and probably ask you some follow-up questions around are around like, how do you, what kinds of tests are you giving to students? Do you diagnose anything? I think we'll, we'll keep asking you more questions, but yeah. you can get started. Let's, let's <laughs> yeah, dig deep in. questions. <laughs> So SLPs in the schools, I think, are one of my favorite population of people to talk to because they are really like the jacks of all trades in our field. I purposely have really gone into a specialization of where I'm either seeing kids with hearing loss or I'm seeing kids with dyslexia um, and a little bit of like processing disorder. But like SLPs in the schools are really like a catch-all. Um, and we know that they are because we have child fine uh, through school systems where it's the responsibility of the schools to find kids that are considered delayed uh, with their academic skills. And that could be with speech and language as well. And so they go through the IEP process to be considered eligible. Eligibility criteria, we know it varies district to district. Um, so, mm -hmm. we, you know, I never tell people like, this is exactly what it needs to be. Just because depending on where you live, that may not be accurate. Um, so SLPs help with the evaluation side of that. And then from there, um, if a child qualifies for speech and language services, then they would develop goals and work with them um, in a group setting or one-on-one. -on -one. But then they also even work with like the preschool kids. So we know that um, schools also serve 
preschools within special education. And so uh, SLPs are generally a part of that team for eligibility if a child's going to qualify for special education preschools uh, to really kind of go through and see. So it's really I mean, it's so cool to be in the schools, though, because in private practice, unless I am asked by the family or unless like the kid is in like a charter or private school, they're generally seeing me in my office or virtually. But when you're in the schools, like, yes, you have the speech room, which has the games and the fun and the glitz <laughs> and the glam, right? But you also get to do direct push-in to help with generalization. Um, you can do push-in to the classroom. Um, you can get creative with your push-in and even do some push-in to, into recess or into lunch, kind of, you know, whatever fits within your schedule. Uh, so you're really able to collaborate a lot with the people within your space to make your therapy impactful. Yeah. Can you help us understand what that looks like? Like say you're, let's just go with pushing in as the most recent example that you just gave. What does that look like? What would you sit there with the student? Would you be listening for certain things based on their goals? Like what happens in that push in setting? So I think it's, it really depends on what you're working on. Um, I know that I've really enjoyed when I do push in with kids where if they're in small group, then I'm kind of sitting there and help guiding them. Uh, so sometimes the SLP might be sitting right next to them. Sometimes it might be more of that observation, kind of seeing what they're doing in the classroom. Sometimes it could even be, depending on the school, co-teaching something with the classroom teacher. That's a little bit harder in the public school setting just because of the nature of the way things are set up. But with enough planning and structure around it, you could be able to do that. So it just really depends on what you're working towards. Um, but there's plenty of ways that you can get creative with push-in services. All right, Sydney, so I'm going to ask you a question as a parent, <clears throat> a real one. So I have a three-year-old, almost four-year-old, and you can, you know, as as he's, he's gaining speech. You know, there are, there are letters that he said, like specifically one that he does is the Y, like the, you know, sound for Y, the yeah sound mm -hmm. he replaces with an L, right? So for yellow, he says Lello. In my mind, I'm like, he's three. <laughs> and I'm wondering as a parent, I know this is a question most parents probably think, when do you want to advocate like when do you like when's the line when you're like okay I'm gonna wait and see if this just changes or mm. when's the when's the time when I like should reach out to an SLP or you know to my school to see about getting a reference ref referral to an SLP like what when when does that what should that happen as a parent What's your uh, recommendation? <laughs> Put me on the spot. <laughs> um, so that one is twofold, I guess. I am personally not a believer in waiting and seeing. I think when we wait and see, then that's when we sit there and um, we really see kids struggle. So if you're a parent and you're concerned, I think that parents' concerns are always valid, even if you go and it pans out that like the professional says, oh, you know what? I think it's fine. It's always good to go get your peace of mind checked out um, because what if it isn't? And then you've waited six months, mm -hmm. a year, two years. And now we're dealing with compounding issues because we know that everything kind of builds on each other. So the first thing I always say is if you as a parent are saying, 
I'm not really sure about this. I want to check it out. It's always worth a conversation with your child's pediatrician if they're not in school. If they are in school, it's always worth that conversation with the teacher to just kind of address that. The other thing is there are so many resources that are free online that people just don't know about. Um, so there's one, like we have norms that come out about when we expect kids to oh. have certain speech sounds mastered. And so um, I want to say like new ones came out in 2020, I believe. And they like these are specifically geared to the U.S. and U.S. consonant structures. And so that's a really good resource. They even have like pretty infographics. Uh, So if you ever want one as like a teacher or as an SLP, they are available free on the Web. Uh, But those tell you kind of like around two these are the sounds that we would expect around three, around four, around five. And so those, since those are available kind of publicly, then you can kind of use those as a check mark as a parent. Now, does that mean every kid is going to hit that exactly? No, um, but it gives you a guide. And then what we know is like having extra practice and somebody modeling like correct pronunciations is not going to be detrimental to a child. Yeah. Sydney, I love that advice. Um, I love also the idea of being proactive versus reactive. That's super helpful. I also, I will share um, my daughter. I had that same experience as Melissa with different letters and sounds with her when she was about, I think, just under three. She had to be just under three. And I... I did exactly what you just said. I went online. I looked up like general speech norms or general speech milestones, found them and was like, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm going to call my local child find. And at that time they came and they did an assessment and they said, she's okay for, for now. But if you do the assessment, once she turns three, I guess it was like the marker, she will qualify. So in a couple months I called again they did the assessment again, but I guess because she had aged up, then she qualified and they started services right away. But it was really helpful to have that marker of like, okay, I'm feeling affirmed as a parent that I noticed this thing. I'm, I got it checked out. I got it assessed. And oh, I realized, okay, if I call again really soon, she's going to qualify and get services more immediately. It was nipped in the bud before she even hit first grade. Like, we, I think she was dismissed from services. She got services through pre-K and then into, I think I just kind of pushed for them to stay into kindergarten. And then it, before she, I think before the spring of kindergarten, she was dismissed. So I think I love that idea of being proactive versus reactive and really as a parent trusting your instinct to have something checked out for your child. I mean, I think that's great. Very sound advice in all areas of parenting and in life, but really helpful here too, when it's something that just feels like confusing as a parent, it it almost feels like one more thing. And you're like, what is this developmentally appropriate? Is it not? I'm not sure. It's, it's cute the way they say whatever, right? Like yellow, (laughs) like Melissa just said. Um, So it's hard to know. Well, and you can't know all things, right? Like that's why we have people that that's their area of specialization. But I think the biggest thing is like parents know their kids way better than we do. I'll tell anybody that you can bring me a kid. I'm, I have the clinical knowledge and I have to get to know your kid, but I'm still only with them for just a short amount of time. When we know that kids spend like I think it's 80 percent or close to it of their time with caregivers or parents, you know, whatever that looks like for their family situation. And they're with teachers and providers that other 20% of the time, it's a really small amount of time. 
Whereas the rest of the heavy duty is coming in from the family. So you can't ever, in my opinion, just flat out dismiss parental concerns because you have way more experience and time around this kid than I ever will doing an assessment or even if I'm treating them. Yeah. Oh, so good. So, so supportive of families too. So thank you. If SLPs are in schools, what can they diagnose? How does this process work? Like if I'm a, a looking out from the outside, like if I'm looking from the outside in to a school, what happens if there are some concerns for my child? Yeah. So I think that there's important like breakdowns that need to happen. So in a school setting, SLPs generally are diagnosing things related to speech and language concerns pretty much strictly. When we're <laughs> looking at literacy, when we're looking at dyslexia, um, the SLP might be a part of the evaluation process, but they're not going to be the one that's providing that final diagnosis if that's what we're looking for. If you're working with somebody in the private setting, depending on their state laws and legislations, then you might have an SLP that's able to diagnose your child with dyslexia. So understanding that like, since our scope of practice as an SLP is so vast, um, it's sometimes hard when we're like, but the SLP can do this. It's like, just because they can doesn't necessarily mean that that's within their scope of uh clinical competence. So it's not that it's not in their practice. Yes, it's in your scope of practice, but maybe it's not in your scope of competence. It's not something you feel good about. It's not something that you do on a daily. And so I think that's something that we've been seeing a lot more of is there are a lot of SLPs in the school settings that are trying to educate themselves about literacy beyond just phonological awareness, understanding the language underpinnings, but recognizing that like our training programs for speech pathologists are really trying to cram all of this information for across our scope of practice into two, maybe three years. And then people are going into settings where they just don't, they're not getting all of that training. So sometimes it takes a little bit of time. So I always caution people like extend grace and kindness um, to your school-based SLP because they may not know. That just may not be something that they have a lot of experience with. I think that was such a good point you brought up even when we talked prior to this conversation because, you know, I, it just didn't hit me until you said it. And I'm thinking like as a teacher, you know, we're trained fairly specifically and we still don't get all that we need in our training for that fairly specific grade band. Um, but, you know, as we said, you know, birth to 125, is that what we landed on? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, you know. that's the way we're saying it now, Melissa. Birth to, I'm going to look up the oldest person in the world's age and we're going to go with that. So you continue on with 125 until further notice. <laughs> but... There's no way that you can, you know, be trained for every speech and language issue that might come up for everyone at all of those ages. There's just no way. So when you said like you you specialize in dyslexia, that doesn't mean that every speech language pathologist does and has the knowledge they need necessarily. But, you know, um, they might (laughs) and they might be able to get it, but they might not at the moment. (laughs) It's It's just a really good point. Um, all right. I'm ready to dig into a next topic. Are you all ready? Let's do it. 
really excited for it. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's so easy for people to put speech language over here. You know, oh, they go to the speech language pathologist down the hall over here. And then you have reading in the classroom over here. (laughs) And Sydney, I know you are a big proponent of like there is so much overlap (laughs) between, you know, students are having difficulties with speech and language. It's going to show up in their reading. And I, it, I would love to hear your take on that and we can just keep talking about it. Yeah. Oh, man. This is what I mean, like when people get put into boxes. So mm-hmm. most times in a lot of settings, um, especially schools, SLPs are really just like put into that box of like you address the articulation. Um, but how dare you mention anything about reading? Right. Like, you know, <laughs> you, not you are not your name. Yeah. <laughs> how how dare you? You don't understand reading. You're not a reading specialist. Um, but yet when you talk to the reading specialist, what do they talk about? The language underpinnings. What do right. SLPs do? They work on language. So right. <laughs> uh yeah, actually you might know a little bit more than we're giving people credit for. And so that's where it starts. I actually just had a really good conversation with a researcher this morning where that's what we talked about is we have to get people to understand the connections between language and literacy. It's not enough to just understand how to do reading instruction and good reading instruction that's super important. But if we have kids with weak language skills, if we have kids who are having some type of difficulty with um, pronunciations, then we are still not doing right by these kids when it comes to reading instruction. And it's not even just kids that are using what we like called general American English or standard American English, however people want to classify it now, even looking at our kids with dialects, you know, how much do we understand about dialectal differences in conversation and how are those showing up within reading, within prompts? Um, We have to know these things and we have to know them well. It is not enough just to understand the science of reading and say, I understand SOR, that's great. Do we understand brain function? Do we understand those foundational skills? Uh, And that's something that when people send me emails and they're like, just tell me which reading programs I need to use. (laughs) Tell me which trainings I should go to. The first thing I always say is like, well, what's your foundation? Well, I just want to know so I can do it. And it's like, no, you can't build a house on a weak foundation. Well, you can. You can build a house on a weak foundation. (laughs) not going to go well. (laughs) it's going to collapse. And so we need to make sure that SLPs are building that strong foundation. You have the language there. You just have to understand how it connects to reading. Yeah. And when you were talking, I was thinking like, you know, I had, I had my son in mind, right. With he, you know, he's, he's maybe hearing or saying the, the sound, the L and the Y sound, right. It's, it's getting mixed up. Right. So I'm thinking like, okay, when it gets to goes to start reading and writing, that's where it might, you know, cause a problem, right? Is like, we're trying to teach him what these letters represent, what sounds they represent, and he's having trouble hearing and saying them. And I, it just hit me when you, when you were talking that like, that's the same as our dialect. Like even, you know, I know that there, there there's some words in my Eastern Pennsylvania (laughs) dialect that, you know, when I grew up, we called it a crick, right? 
And so when I saw the word, when I saw the word Sorry. creek, that's true though. It's true. I know. I know. I'm when I saw the word creek spelled C-R-E-E-K, I was like, what is that? Like, what is this whole other word that I don't know about? Right. I'm thinking of, uh, growing up in South Jersey, I'm thinking of how we said water. Which was, oh, yeah. you know, I have that same one. Yeah, oh, yeah. Order. yeah. <laughs> I was like W O O D E R. <laughs> but it is, it's the way you say it, is how it's. Well, that's spelled. how you're hearing right? it, right? That's, that's, how, that's, that's how, how I'm visualizing it, it too. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so exactly. It, it really is. Like, I am a proud African American English user in my personal life. Um, and I grew up in the South. So <laughs> I have I have influences of both. And sometimes I'll say Oh yeah. So sometimes I'll say things, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <That's> not, <laughs> or like I can tell somebody else that not pick up on that. Um, but it, it like it does. It my spelling sometimes, like I really have to think about it because the way that I pronounce the word is not necessarily exactly how it's spelled. Um, so there are some like phonological influences that happen. Uh, but even like our language structure, I mean, the way that I might put a sentence together or the syntax or the um, vocabulary that I'm using is going to be very, very different depending on the setting. And so it doesn't mean that like a kid doesn't necessarily know Um some vocabulary it just it may be that like that is different than the vocabulary that they use at home and that's okay we have different vocabularies that we use in different settings and there is nothing wrong with that for sure to get can you give an example like can you get not you know from your personal life but maybe of a student that um you might we might see um and then maybe how we would address that like as a teacher how could i respectfully share with a student it's not crick you know, stop laughing at me, Lori. I'm sorry. I'm only, I'm only laughing because I've never heard you say that. It's just I can't imagine you saying it, so it's really funny to me. Help, help, uh, Melissa, a- help Melissa self-correct that. <laughs> just Y'all are too funny. Um, so I've actually been having these conversations with Dr. Lakeisha Johnson, um, who is at FSU a lot recently because we're working on a project together, um, and so we want to make sure that we are not correcting students and saying like yours, your dialect is wrong and my dialect is right. Um, right. And so like something that she's used and that she's gotten from research is talking about like using clothing as an example. Um, so, you know, like sometimes we might wear a dress. Sometimes we might wear shorts and a t-shirt. Sometimes we might wear like the full tux. Uh, and you can wear those different things to different places that's going to shape, you know, how we're using our language and things like that. Um, But when I have kids that produce things a little bit differently, I don't really harp on it. If you still understand the meaning of it, because I know that like you say, like I say water, I don't say water (laughs) with like King's English, but like the meaning is still the same. So I think it's even the same in the classroom. If you have kids that are saying things a little bit differently, or even if their vocabulary is slightly different than how you would phrase it as a teacher, if it's not impacting them academically, or if it's not impacting the concept that's being taught, then you can really let it go. It's okay. (laughs) You can let it go. It's fine. Um, Or if it is impacting it, you can just say like, oh, you know what? We are talking about, let's say the word is um, 
puddle or whatever. You know, we're talking about puddle. It's not a whatever somebody else might call it. This is a puddle. Uh, this and then define it and go through it that way. So really making sure that like it's tying back without discounting the other person's experience and what they're bringing to the table. Can I just tell you my absolute favorite posts on uh, the Facebook group, what I wish I learned in college, science of reading, what I wish I learned in college are the ones where someone will say how many phonemes are in whatever word doesn't matter what the word is, right? Whatever word, how many phonemes are in this word? I will read the entire comment section because we have people from all over the United States, different countries, and people are like, you say that word like that? (laughs) And I love it because I, I think it's just like, like, oh, like, yeah, we actually legitimately do say words differently depending on where we live. And it's okay because if you say it, there's only one way then you're, you know, you go home and you hear still everyone around you is saying it <laughs> the, the way that you've always heard it. Like to hear that that's wrong is, you know, it's like, we're always going to say water here in Philadelphia area. It's just <laughs> not going to change. <laughs> but I love, I love those posts. It, they're like pure joy for me. <laughs> yeah, Those are pretty good. I like them too. Melissa, if you find one, can you, or, I mean, we'll have to look for one to, to oh, link I'll here tag one in, in the right, show yeah. notes for sure. This is, <laughs> and everybody will be joining that Facebook group and be like, oh yeah, it is 200 so comments fun. later. And you're, like, you're like, oh my gosh, like in Australia, that's how they say that. That's so crazy. <laughs> it is so interesting. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. Well, Sydney, I'm wondering if you have any and pieces of advice for teachers out there listening to this. We know we have a huge teacher audience, and I think this is a great opportunity for an SLP to talk directly to our teachers who are working with, you know, lots of students who may need some SLP support every day in the classroom. Yes. Well, first off, I want to say, like, I love teachers. <laughs> One of my best friends from college is uh, a teacher. She just got her master's in reading instruction. And so oh, the yay. amount of <laughs> love and dedication that you guys pour into teaching, I think is truly remarkable, especially from what we've seen over the past uh, couple of years with how challenging it's been to stay in the classroom. Mm So first off, just kudos to all the teachers that are out there and listening. Um, And then the second thing is lean into your resources. It does not have to be a battle of like the SLP versus the classroom teacher um, or the classroom teacher versus the reading interventionist or versus administration. Uh, One thing that I have always benefited from in my career is the amount of interprofessional collaboration and learning how to work with other people. And that does not always mean that you agree. There are plenty of people that I've worked with in my career uh, that I love and admire. And I still sometimes I'm like, you know, what? I don't really agree with that line of thinking or that's just not how I would do something. Mm -hmm. But it's okay. You don't always have to agree, but we're all working for the common good. And the common good is to help these kids that we have in our classrooms to be successful. So if you have an SLP in your school building, get to know them and then find out what they what their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, I challenge SLPs that are listening to be honest about that. I think sometimes we are touted as professionals about having to know all the things and it's uncomfortable to say that that is not in my wheelhouse. But be honest with the people within your school and tell them like, you know, I would love to support you with this. I don't know a lot about it, but I'd love to learn with you. I think people respect the honesty when you say that I don't know 
but I'm willing to go and learn with you versus when you try to say like, oh, I know all the things and then, you know, like you're stumbling. So don't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then, like I said, with the teachers, just really leaning into what you have available. We know that resources are scarce. We know that there's um, hardships. Like those things are not new in education. I feel like they've maybe been amplified, but they're not new. Uh, So just really realizing how you can work with the students. And then, you know, it might take a little bit of extra research on your own, but I feel like once you kind of understand that knowledge, uh, that's something you take with you. Nobody can take that from you. Sydney, you mentioned on our pre-call about a research study, um, and I think we'll just underline the need for the collaboration, especially with speech-language pathologists, reading specialists, teachers, um, about the connection between speech and reading. Do you want to talk a little about it? Yeah. So I um, found this study. I think it got published in 2020, but it was like 25% of kids that were receiving school-based services for speech sound disorders or articulation, um, as some people may know it as, were at risk for reading difficulties. And the same kids that were at risk at the beginning of the year were also at risk at the end of the year. So we know that there's influence of articulation. Um, We just have to figure out how we can, you know, be beneficial and provide instruction across settings. It's not, it's not good enough for somebody to just go to speech for 30 minutes, two times a week, one times a week. Um, But if you as the classroom teacher can use what you have to reinforce those things. And the nice thing is it's beneficial for everybody. (laughs) It's not just beneficial for this one kid that needs it. Um, They may be your target, but all kids benefit from that direct explicit instruction with how to produce sounds, even if they haven't mastered, it's not going to be detrimental to them. Such a good point. Thank you. (laughs) Cindy, is there anything else you wanted to mention about the community and the impact that SLPs can have in the community? I don't think so. I just, I, that is where my heart lives. I think that there are so many amazing resources. That's why I love your podcast. I mean, you know, even though it's a podcast, like it's still a free and accessible resource. And you guys have brought on some big, big names within the literacy space that have shared some precious gems for people. Um, Just realizing that like we have the information, we know that the information about structured reading has been out for decades. Um, There's no need for us to gatekeep it. We should just make it available in whatever way that feels authentic to you. I love being on social media. I have loved growing my profile. I love getting on Canva and making my infographics to share with people. Um, That is like a form of stress release for me, surprisingly. (laughs) Um, But other people don't want to do that. They don't want to dedicate their time to that. That's too much. And that's fine. So figure out what works for you. It doesn't have to be the Sydney method. It doesn't have to be Melissa and Lori and create a podcast. It could just be something small. It could be local. It could just be with the people that you interact with on a daily. But that's your decision and your choice to make about how you can be impactful in your community. We love that. Well, we're so glad that you're here. And I think we have some really fun questions to wrap it up. Some rapid fire. I don't think we even prepared you for this. So <laughs> you did. Yeah, so. <laughs> Coming at you. <ya. laughs> <laughs> <Woo! laughs> 
Well, if you've listened to the end of other ones, then you might be prepared. <laughs> um, so we have four questions for you. Just whatever comes to mind. This, this is not a test. <laughs> okay. <laughs> First question is, what do you love to read? Ooh, Okay, I really like children's books. That's terrible. Um, it's not. not. <laughs> <laughs> I find the stories now are just so like different than I feel like the books that I had growing up and the creativeness of these authors. Just uh, it always surprises me. Um, so I love reading children's books. And then I've been doing like a lot more listening to articles and things like that versus um, sitting down and like reading them. I'm still considering that reading. So I'm yeah. oh, okay. Considering. Well, I mean, <laughs> there we go. Then we are reading We're doing a whole lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question two. What do you love to watch? Oh man. Okay. So, um, I love junk TV. It's really, really bad. So Big Brother just ended last night. And shout out to Taylor Hale, who is the first Black woman winner of Big Brother. Um, Homegirl went through a whole lot this season, but she prevailed. Uh, so I love anything reality TV. Um, but Big Brother was like my thing this summer. I've watched Love is Blind, uh, <laughs> Real Housewives. Oh my gosh. Yes, I'm with you. <laughs> so fun. And then Law and Order. I'm like a Law and Order fanatic. It's it's pretty bad. That's what I have really? on How while I work. Night after that. That's what I want to know. Um, I watch it during the day, and it's like okay. just kind of on in the background while I'm working. But yeah, no, I don't like the gruesome stuff. Just like get give me the drama. <laughs> that is so funny. I love it. I didn't even know Big Brother was still on. That's that's been on for a long time. It has. <laughs> All right, what do you love to listen to? Ooh, um, so I love listening to podcasts now. Um, I used to like not really like podcasts at all, but I've really enjoyed. There's one um, that just ended earlier this year called Evidence and Argument in CSD, uh, which featured two SLPs on there. I really love that. Um, and then I'm like a huge music person. So like 90s, 2000s uh, will always be a ride for me. And then recently I've been listening to Renaissance by Beyonce. I like finally made time to dedicate, uh, to sit down and just like enjoy. <laughs> and it has been a wonderful experience. I have enjoyed <laughs> this album over the past week. Yeah. It's been a while since I've done that where there's like an one album that I want to list to the whole thing. And I need to do that. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of like, not hard, but you have to like intentionally do it I think now because it's so easy to get wrapped up in other things while you're like right. on an app it's not like you put the right. cd on and exactly that's like you don't buy the exactly. cd and listen to the whole thing right yeah <laughs> could you all total sidebar but can you all in your heads remember like when you listen to a song still today can you hear the next song on the cd yeah uh, like I can yeah. still remember that yeah yeah perfect yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the ones you listen to over and over mm -hmm, again. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you have to get to that point with Beyonce, Sydney. <laughs> oh, it's already happened. That's it's already happened. That's a very her, point. Her like transition. So like fun fact, I'm a huge bandy and I did marching band for eight years of my life. I did four years in high school and then I marched four years uh, at the University of South Carolina. And so I will forever stand 
like good music with great transitions. And this album is beautiful. Like it just flows from one song to the other so seamlessly. It's like you can't help but to listen nicely. Oh, I love it. So well, I feel you really like we should tag it. some people in, in this podcast. I, like, we should definitely be tagging Beyonce. <laughs> definitely be tagging the Big Brother winner. <laughs> All the shout outs today, right? <laughs> All right. We're bringing it home. Why do you do what you love for education or for literacy or for your community? I think we can open it up. Oh, man. Oh, wow. I was not expecting this question. Okay. Um, So I think the first reason for why I do this work is because I know the family impact of it. Um, My brother is like almost eight years younger than me. So I was very much so aware of the experiences that he was going through as he was going through them. Um, So that is always stuck with me and been something that like holds dear and true to my heart. And then even when I got to work clinically and started working clinically um, to see the impact of families when they realized that they had a provider that cared for them, when they realized that there was a provider that was not just willing to work with their kid, but was willing to go to bat with the family and make sure that they felt fully educated and informed is something that still is really impactful for me. Um, And then for my community, I, I, you cannot <laughs> be successful without community influence. Our communities shape every aspect, whether you like think they don't or not, um, they do. When people understand and know about why things are happening in their community, um, they're able to make better informed decisions. And that is how we help to create better health equity um, because literacy is a part of public health. And whether people want to realize that or not, like it's a part of your health, it's a part of your wellness. Um, So being able to understand that like when we do small things within our classroom, the overall impact is so much bigger than what we're seeing within those students. And you don't, you never know what people are carrying home with them either. So important. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you so much for this whole conversation. You know. Oh, thank you guys. I'm like getting choked up talking about my why, but yeah, I have (laughs) appreciated being here so much. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday. Sign up to stay connected with us at literacypodcast.com. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our literacy lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.